You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm Sean Leahy, along with co-host Punya Mishra. And for today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with different Learning Futures collaboratives. And we've had some wonderful conversations this season, and I'm sure today's conversation will not disappoint. Today, we're going to be talking about all things education, sustainability, and global futures. So for this particular LFC, the main research question has been the goal of education, sustainability, and global futures is, is to investigate what education policies, practices, research, and pedagogies are necessary to reverse the ecological catastrophe trajectory and begin rebuilding resilient and sustainable futures for all. Uh, The description on the LFC states that the efforts stemming from the UN Decade of Education for Sustainable Development, schools and higher education institutions continue to perpetuate the status quo by reproducing the logic of human exceptionalism liberal individualism, and the hierarchical man-over-nature relationship, fueling infinite economic growth on a finite planet. This Learning Futures Collaborative aims to reimagine and reconfigure education towards the future survival of the planet and people. Um, Okay, so that's a lot. This is a really great LFC um, to have join us. Um, Again, we were just, we just had another episode the other day, again, where we were just talking about the diversity of these LFCs. And Puni, I don't know if there's anything you want to kind of comment about this particular LFC, but I'm really excited to have our, our guests here today to talk about this because this is this is work that's uh, very close to both mine and your work as well. Um, so just absolutely uh, thrilled to 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 be talking yeah. about this today. No, no, this is this is fabulous, and you know I I sound like a stuck record when I talk about this, but it's so exciting that these learning futures collaborators, when we sort of initially thought of them, that people would take up big ideas and challenges. And I don't think any LFC has taken on anything bigger uh, than this particular one, you know, and the topics that they are sort of investigating and looking at. And I also think that, you know, just thinking about, you know, Iveta and how much she has influenced my thinking about these issues, um, so just glad to be in a conversation with her and also to meet uh, Gary Facer, our other guest whose work um, I think is very inspirational. I think the only thing I would add here is that the connection between what we're going to be talking about today and the other LFC that we have, which is around imagination and futures thinking, uh, which I think overlaps really well with some of the topics we will be covering today. So I'm just excited about this conversation and um, want to jump right into it rather than my going on and on. <laughs> well, I'll I'll go on and on, but um, yeah. So, like you said, we've got some big questions. We've got big questions to tackle here, um, and who better to do it with than our special guest? So, let me quickly introduce them. Um, first off, we have Iveta Solova. Iveta is professor and associate dean of global engagement here at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at ASU. She teaches graduate courses in comparative and international education, education policy and evaluation, research design, and post-decolonial approaches to educational research. Iveta, welcome to the show again. I think. I'll have to check, but I think you have the record for the most reoccurring guest appearances on Learning Futures podcast. I'm pretty sure. So that is pretty awesome. And thanks for having me again. Yes, absolutely. And today we're we are very pleased to be joined by our special guest, Carrie Facer. Uh, Carrie is professor of education and social futures at the University of Bristol, visiting professor in education for sustainable development at the University of Gothenburg, and August T. Larson guest professor at SLU in Sweden. Her work focuses specifically on cultivating the temporal imagination 
the capacity to work critically with ideas of time, rhythm, past, and futures to open up possibilities for individual and collective agency in conditions of environmental and technological change. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. It's such a pleasure to have you joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. Awesome. Okay. So, Iveta, I know you came prepared with some questions to kind of get us kicked off and started, but perhaps as we sort of situate with the futures and thinking about this, perhaps you can just give a really quick background of sort of the origin story, if you will, for the LFC and why why have you reached out to and collected amazing colleagues like Carrie to join us today? Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for this question, Sean. So um, yes, we started the Learning Futures Collaborative on Education for Sustainability and Global Futures um, last year, but I think the conversation started even earlier because so many of us have been kind of working on the edges of some of these kind of bigger challenges related to education, sustainability, and futures. And I think kind of at the core of the problem, um, for us was the understanding the the understanding that education is at least in its current form really contributes to the climate crisis and ecological crisis rather than uh solves it despite all of the rhetorics that we hear everything um you know everywhere at various policy levels so we decided to kind of put our efforts together both uh, from the policy perspective but also from the pedagogical perspective from philosophical perspectives um to think together how can this very fairly new uh, institution of modern schooling can be reimagined? Because it's really interesting that it's a fairly new phenomenon, but it has been ingrained in our minds so deeply that there is one way to uh, do schooling effectively that it, I find it, actually many of us find it very, very difficult to kind of reimagine how we can think about education, learning, schooling, um, differently, especially radically differently. It's one of these almost taboo topics, I think. Once you begin criticizing the institution of modern schooling, you almost immediately often become attacked for um, maybe undermining principles of equities that modern schooling is associated with or, um, you know, access to education and, you know, some of the other uh, maybe associations that modern, modern schooling um, has created. But so maybe moving to um, a conversation with Scary, I actually wanted to say that, acknowledge that many of us have come to this discussion of education and futures fairly recently. So maybe in the last five years or so. And I know that Carrie has worked on this field for a really long time, much longer than all of us, right? Before futures, learning futures, futures thinking became um, trendy in education. <laughs> um, so, and I actually wanted to start maybe with a more personal story and ask Carrie to share her trajectory with us, right? How did you come to become the future scholar, right? Way before <laughs> anyone else was thinking about it. <laughs> Thanks for that, Iveta. Well, yeah, and I mean, the work that you guys are doing is, is amazing. So it's lovely to be in conversation mm -hmm. with you. I got into this because um, I started my career studying children's use of technologies. Um, studying children's use of technology in the home. And what happens when you start with that sort of thing is that people think you know about the future. 
So I ended up working for an organization called Future Lab, which was called Future Lab because we were working with technologists. And then the government, because we were called Future Lab, gave us this big contract in the UK. This was in about 2005, 2006, to do a big piece of futures work in education. And the reason they gave it to us was very simple. It's because we were working on technology. Now, as soon as you start looking at futures seriously and you start saying, well, what's going to happen or what might happen? You do two things. One of them is you look at climate change and ecological catastrophe, you know, full on as something that you can't avoid. Um, and the second thing you start doing is you start saying, well, how do we think about futures? What's the relationship between education and the future? Who gets to have a say about this idea of the future? And frankly, why are we so obsessed with futures when we think about schooling? So I think this comes back to your point of better around mod modern schooling. I mean, the the emergence of modern schooling ties into the emergence of modern childhood. And this idea of childhood, as I think Nick Lee, the sociologist, calls children fragments of the future. There's that concept that you can control the future through children. And this is something I've been working against probably for the last 15 to 20 years, this idea that we use schooling as a mode of controlling the future through children. So. My relationship with futures and education has always been a little bit contested. Why do we think certain things are associated with the future and some not? What are we missing? Um, and then why do we think we should work on children as a way of working on the future? That to me is actually a really difficult question because it, it, it to me it's tangled up in all sorts of colonial imperatives. The idea that we should we'll see the future as open if we work on kids, we can make the better future, and that's a problem both you know left and right, progressive, conservative. So for me, quite a lot of what I'm interested in is in some ways understanding how these concepts of the future that we're working with are shaping our ideas of the present how are they shaping our ideas of education and becoming a bit more critical and reflective about them i hope that's enough of a backstory there's a lot of other details as well you know in stories but that that's the top level that's awesome it's really really interesting but maybe um we can talk about this a little bit more about this contested nature of uh, futures and schooling and, uh, you know, the whole kind of bigger conversations that we also are witnessing right now about these futures thinking being discussed as um, almost being a necessary part of the curriculum at various levels. We hear conversations about futures thinking, integration at primary, secondary, tertiary, professional development levels, right? And uh, maybe you can share a little bit more with us from your perspective. So, uh, you know, what are some of the tensions there, but also maybe what are some of the interesting ways to integrate futures thinking in ways maybe that is more meaningful, right? And that maybe helps us prepare to face a very difficult and uncertain futures that we have, right? But also maybe reimagine the possible futures in more radical ways. What are some of the maybe entry points that could be more meaningful? Yeah, I mean, um, so one of my other day jobs is I edit the Futures Journal, and that's the journal. It's 60 years old. It's been tied up with the field of future studies. So the field of future studies has been going through since since really just sort of post the Second World War. And it arose um, out of this concern that we had developed technologies that would have impact for millennia. So once you've invented the nuclear bomb, you have to ask yourselves, well, what, what does this mean for our relationship with the future? 
So that field of future studies um, has spent a really long time thinking, how do we support ourselves to think about think about the future? And it's got multiple strands of work in it. So for example, it's got a sort of corporate, military, industrial strand of future studies, which is, if you like, game theory, trying to figure out what the other people are going to do. How do you predict? Um, how do you map out scenarios so that you can figure out how to take advantage? And then you've got the other side of future studies, which is, if you like, the critical traditions of future studies that are asking questions like, you know, who's generating ideas of the futures? What are assumptions are we basing them on? How do we proliferate different ideas of the futures, make alternatives more visible? And that is the sort of work that you might see dating back to the 1970s, 80s, Jung and Muller, the Futures Creating Workshop. And then you've got amazing people like David Hicks, Richard Slaughter, Ivana Milosevic, and others who've spent 20, 30 years developing futures education. And that tradition of futures education ties into, I mean, it's got real overlaps with peace studies. It's got real overlaps with environmental education. And its, it's focus has really been on how do we support young people to think about the futures that are in development so Barbara Adam, the sociologist of the future, would call this the latent futures. What are the sorts of things we are making and how do we take responsibility for those? So there's that tradition of futures in education. And then more recently, we've got the rise of what we call futures literacy literacies, which is a, an interesting debate that I'm having with, the, with uh, the people who head it up, which is driven really by a group of people who, who would name themselves as scholars of anticipation. So what they're trying to do is separate themselves from the bunch of people who say our job is to look at the future and try to predict it and say, actually, the interesting thing is how our ideas of the future shape the present. And coming out of that work is this concept of futures literacy, which is how do we question the ideas of the future that we are working with? How do we think about what they're based upon? How do we think about the impacts that they might have in, um, in our decision making in the present? So what we're trying to do there, um, what that field is trying to do, is really help all of us. And by that, I also mean those of us who are very worried about environmental catastrophe, okay? To think about, if you like, how these images are having effects on our sense of possibility in the present. And that, for me, is a critical issue about all of this. I'm not actually that interested in which images of the future we're working with. I'm interested in whether they are enabling us to see possibilities for taking care of the present in different ways. So that's, if you like, a, a sort of potted history of future studies and futures literacies. That's awesome, Carrie. Thank you so much. But on this note, so you mentioned this debate between the futures literacy versus futures literacies. And I find it really interesting. So maybe you can share a little bit more yeah. of maybe some of the interesting uh, tensions in this debate and um, yeah, any interesting insights? Well, I mean, part of my back history, my backstory is, is, is literature studies and literacy studies. So, and one of the things that we know from that work is that there's no single thing called literacy. And that actually when we get, when we, suggest that there's only one sort of literacy, what that does is it produces concepts of illiteracy. It produces the idea that some people don't fit that. And so quite simply, when the concept of futures literacy has been presented, I don't have an argument with the idea that it's useful for us to reflect on our ideas of the future. My, my concern is that we frame that as a particular sort of literacy, which then produces some people as not able to do that. 
And there are problems around that because everybody thinks about the future. Everybody does it in a whole range of different ways. So what Arathi Sriprakash and I um, have been working on and thinking about is, if you like, how do we provincialize this idea of the kind of critical reflection on the future um, as not being simply something that that, that uh, is, if you like, a particular form of expertise that originates in Western intellectual traditions? And instead, how do we recognize that critical approaches to thinking about the future are emerging in many, many different places around the world? And this ties into your work, Yvette, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear about post-decolonization. So how do we post-decolonize thinking about futures? That, to me, is a, a question that I'd love to dig into with you. Oh, that's awesome. And actually, I was thinking that this, uh, the whole kind of pluralizing the future's literacies is one of the ways, right, to also break this very uh, linear trajectory between childhoods and futures, right? You know, where children and childhoods are linked to very particular futures, right? And uh, I think pluralizing it also kind of disrupts not only this linearity, but also a single destination, right? And uh, helps us to then think about also the whole childhood develop developmentalism also in different ways, right? So it's definitely... Uh, one of the ways to um, decolonialize our relationship with uh, futures literacies or futures thinking. And we have tried to do it actually in some of our work with childhood memories in a project that I have been working with Nelly Piotaiva and Zhuja Mile at Tampere University, which has been really fascinating as well, right? So, you know, using childhood memories to pluralize, again, these conversations about the past and the futures, right? And also break this linearity between the past and the futures and the presence, right? And to bring them more into the conversation with each other. And so in our work, we actually have uh, built quite a lot on um, also on the decolonial work of Chen Asia as method, who tried to also um, break the reference points between the West and the East, right? And uh, kind of reposition the reference points in different kind of geopolitical space as well, right? And so instead, for example, of using Western yardstick as the only measure against which to compare, right? Try to actually organize comparison in on different terms, right? That are not measured against one Western standard, but, um, you know, creates different reference points. So um, we use childhood memories to try to do this and bring childhood memories from you know, the former socialist spaces into conversation with each other, right? So it suddenly begins telling not only alternative histories of kind of what the past and the present and the futures um, are, but also um, kind of reposition childhood also very differently in conversations about the futures. I mean, another actually interesting, uh, I wanted to say another interesting thing about this, uh, you know, working with childhood memories in the post-socialist space, right, was also that we are we realize that we are dealing also with this idea of unrealized futures, right? So as children, we were living, we were preparing to live the socialist futures that never materialized, right? So I think that was also a really interesting example how that linearity breaks and suddenly opens up to many more possibilities of how we can think about the possible trajectories and possible futures. 
So if I can if I can interject for a second, firstly, I love this sort of the looking back and looking forward because even the past that we create is a is is, is sort of a created past where you know hindsight being twenty twenty here is where I am now. It sort of leads from this story to me today, right? And then thinking and always thinking sort of to the future. I just love that that sort of past future link. But I'm just curious, uh, and Kerry and Iveta, both either of you, because many of our listeners may not be familiar with this idea of futures thinking. So partly because, you know, and I can see sort of a question that can emerge, which has to do with that, there is so much uncertainty in that. So if I just think about, let's say just a few months back, we have all known that, you know, AI technologies are around the corner, they're going to disrupt this. And there's been a lot of talk about it. But suddenly, as of last October or November, it became real. Right now, everybody is like, oh, my God, this thing is here. It can do X, it can do Y. It can make a New York Times journalist try to break up his marriage to his wife. What the heck is going on? You know, so suddenly, I mean, so these sort of disruptions, and those are sort of at some level quasi-predictable, but also not. So I'm just curious about how futures thinking sort of is looking at, you know, sort of at children and these possible literacies in ways that acknowledges the the indeterminacy of this future. Just like um, you said, you know, when you look back at the, the I, I don't, I'm missing the phrase that you know, very evocative phrase about these sort of futures that didn't happen, right? Yeah. Which you were yeah. growing up towards when you were a child. And so I'm just curious, how does futures thinking sort of think about this indeterminacy and actually they internalizes it in order to think more powerfully about the future. Either of you, you know, whoever wants to jump in. Yeah. And, and, and I might just quickly add to that too. So first of all, Punya, I think it's an interesting point that, you know, going back, right. All the presentations and things we would, we would give when we talk about multiple futures, we would use these cautionary tales of a global pandemic and what disruption would that have? And then artificial intelligence and what disruption would that have? And, you know, we got to stop uh, putting those things out in the universe because they seem to be coming true uh, of late. But the other, but the piece I'd like to kind of tack on to, to Punya's question, as as you were talking about this, one of the questions that I would have when you're, especially when you're working with younger, younger people, so children, young adults, compared to professional, you know, grown adults working, is also what about, where does the role of creativity come into when thinking about futures and the futures literacies and thinking about the approach to that? Because I know when we do a lot of work with futures thinking, for example, with, with um, you know, adults who are well into their careers, oftentimes we say, you know, imagine the future and it's exactly like today with one, everyone's in a space jumpsuit or something. There's one minor change because their way of thinking has been so locked in. And so I'm just kind of curious about to, to Punya's point, like, how do you think about this from a, you know, bringing this idea of futures thinking to this population, but then also, like, how do we, in, yeah, how do you handle the 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 freedom to have the, or the creativity to be able to start thinking about those things? And what do we see in that? Um, okay, so there's quite a lot in both of those questions. Um, I go to the latter point. I mean, the whole field of future studies has got many, many resources to help support both adults and children get over that very banal habit that we're all into, which is the future is either something we don't want to see happening, you know, it's a dystopia, or it's lovely, one or the other. And, and we get locked into that. And one of the reasons we get locked into that is because our cultural landscape is deeply impoverished when it comes to imagining futures. So 
there's a whole field of work there. So, I mean, for, for people who want to think about how you stimulate creativity in relation to thinking about futures, have a look at the work of Peter Bishop and the people who are working on Teach the Future. Look at Roberto Poli's work. Um, there's loads and loads of resources and techniques. Join the World Future Studies Federation. I mean, there is, there's material out there to help support those processes, I would say. The second Key issue really is also about permission, permission to explore, to, to imagine and to feel safe and actually creating spaces where, where you can feel safe to do that is really is, is an important an important point. I think the third point is, is I'm actually moving away a little bit from the focus just on futures as a language. I'm much more interested in the question of the temporal imagination. So how do we use time as a whole rather than just using the future as the kind of site for creativity and imagination? And um, one of the reasons for that is because if we focus if you like all of our creativity and energy on this creation of a vision of the future, it can blind us to what's going on in the present. It can blind us to what's, it can become a world of wishful thinking. It can become a world of fantasy. And we've all been in those workshops where we get invited to think about a lovely future. And then it's like, yeah, so what, what happens next? How do you get there? How many so times just, can you rebuild a colony on Mars? Exactly, right, you yeah. Know, yeah. And I mean, just simply, and I think there's, there's some seriously eth serious ethical questions about inviting people to do that without actually thinking about how you build capacity to start making change. So there's a couple of things I'm shifting to recently. One of them is we need to be able to demonstrate and model a whole much wider set of theories of change and change practices than we currently offer people. Because people just go to, I don't know how this is going to happen. There's either going to be a war which will collapse everything or there'll be a technology that'll magically shift it. As long as our imaginations are colonized by the idea that it's either technology or war that makes change, we're in trouble. So this is not about futures thinking. This is about how we theorize how change happens. And we need to look at a lot of examples. In terms of the history side of things, um, one of the my job got made so much easier post the financial crash and then the pandemic. Before both of those, people couldn't imagine that big changes would happen. After the financial crisis, people could imagine economic catastrophe. Since the pandemic, people can imagine, you know, viruses. So, um, you know, that's that's all this. It, it's not a good thing, but it is reasonably useful for stimulating the sense of possibility. But so that's a silver lining for, uh, well, for your yeah, profession. I, I didn't really <laughs> like talking about massive tragedy as having a silver lining, but yes. Um, yeah. So I, there's, a, there's a wonderful paper that I'm... I'd like to put a call out that encourage people to pay attention to Baziuddin Sadar, who's one of the great um, leaders in the futures thinking field. Um, and it's uh, Sadar and Sweeney. And they talk about the different qualities of ignorance that we have at the moment. And that to me is quite an interesting frame. What are the qualities of ignorance that we're working with? And he talks about the difference between what he calls black swans, black elephants and black jellyfish. <laughs> Black swans being, if you like, something that exists, but we've not seen it yet, okay? Black elephants, they talk about as something, and they take this from Vinay Gupta, who's one of the great futures thinkers. A black elephant is something everybody knows is going to happen, but people don't really want to pay attention to. So that would be the pandemic. People knew about this stuff. People have talked about it. Groups of people sat together, and they they didn't, didn't do anything about it. And then the black jellyfish really is about... Um, that's dealing with the concepts of ignorance um, that are related to complexity theory. So it's around a small change having a disproportionate effect. And they call it the black jellyfish because they talk about what happened in the ocean around Germany when a slight temperature increase 
led to a massive increase in jellyfish hmm. that ended up stopping a nuclear power station from working because they moved into the nuclear power station's intake valve. Now, those are the sorts of different sorts of ignorance, different moments of change that we need to be playing with when we want to get creative with thinking about time and futures, not being locked into, is this going to be a good thing? Is this going to be a bad thing? Oh, that's fascinating. I'll just maybe add a little bit also more from our kind of maybe one of the more recent experiences of the the arts-based, uh, socially engaged arts-based project that we have been engaged in called Turn It Around, which was uh, an open invitation from youth around the world to engage with, um, you know, the idea of the futures, right? And share with us their visions of the futures and especially the role of education in the futures. And actually, I first wanted to comment, uh, we have received so many messages of these, uh, so many uh, images of the split earth um, from all corners of the world, right? The dying earth and the uh, green, beautiful blue earth, right? And split right in the middle, or, you know, sometimes, you know, um, horizontally or vertically, you know, in different ways. But, you know, that really kind of symbolizes, I think, also the split idea that it's either, you know, that our decisions basically can lead into the one direction or another. And we had really interesting conversations about this as well. Um, you know, that it may um, reflect this dichotomous thinking, right? That, you know, we have been socialized into, but then, um, you know, in conversations with our colleagues um, in other cultural contexts, right? Also, you know, came to realize that also many children and youth live in this very split reality or where actually they see both, right? They see, you know, species, entire species going extinct, uh, you know, on the one hand, and also, you know, still enjoying very small limited spaces where life is still beautiful, right? And uh, so it's kind of living in this um, split world must be also such a burden, right? And such a difficult, um, you know, thing to do. But um, so I just wanted to comment on that because Carrie mentioned also this, you know, kind of split dichotomous um, thinking about the futures. But also what we found interesting in this project, you know, with youth is that, you know, their thinking about the futures was not grandiose at all, right? A lot of the kind of their visions of the futures were about very small everyday relationships um, with each other with uh, other species, with technology. Um, so it was kind of actually not creating another grandiose, hopeful future, but it actually was more about kind of redefining who we are and how we relate to the people and the planet in different ways, right? So, so for me, this was really, really interesting. Um, you know, really not even trying to imagine something with sparkles and something, you know, hopeful, yeah. but kind of very yeah. real and, you know, very mm. modest. I, I love that. I mean, the, this is the question of kind of scale and duration really matters to me and matters, I think, when we start to talk about these things, because we can often have that split between, okay, there's going to be a global disaster, you know, this is going to be dreadful, but on a small scale, this thing might be okay. So the question of how we we frame our thinking in terms of scale and, and space when we're thinking about futures is really critical. And when we think about timelines as well. So when we think about the future, which future are we inviting people to imagine? Are we talking about next week, next year, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? 
And one of the activities that I like asking people is, you know, what do you imagine you could achieve if you had 100 years to achieve it, as opposed to five years, you know? And what happens if you start thinking, well, I might have 100 years to do something, you start thinking, okay, there's a whole load of things that we could put in place, and we might be able to make happen. And that's quite useful, because it's then you can say, well, maybe we break this up, maybe we don't achieve this all in our lifetime, but maybe we can hand it on to the next group, maybe we can connect up across time to achieve some big changes. And that, that sort of question of the time scale and the geographic scale when we're thinking about futures really matters. This is why I think pluralizing, so we're not talking about the future, we're talking about futures is, is absolutely essential. Yeah. I, you know, I, a question that comes up to it and, you know, pardon sort of bleeding all of the AI conversation in here too. Um, but it, so there's this concept of like poisoning the well, right. Um, in, in artificial intelligence, where if information, you can essentially put an invisible hand on a scale, um, by directing it. And one of the, and I think it's been, it's been brought up a little bit in, in prior conversation here too, right. That the prevalence of this negative view of the future, that the, the pessimism in many ways outweighs the optimism. As a kid growing up in the 80s, it was all, the planet is going to be destroyed, The you know, all this stuff. You know, the doomsday clock has been how close to midnight for how long? Um, there's all this sort of constant rhetoric. And even as a child, we grow up in those environments that is always talking about the doom and gloom. And even if there are, so Iveta, thinking about that, that, that planet, right, their visions, and why do we not have these? And my question is, like, if we're just constantly saturating ourselves and starting from very young age, and you're saturated in these pessimistic views of the damage and the things that will happen, even if the intent is good, the intent is perhaps trying to prevent a, you know, a, a cautionary tale, don't let this happen. But when you're constantly reinforced with those negative images, when you think the future, you think, yeah, war, technology that will help or destroy us, or all of the, the, the issues that are, you know, both real and imagined. But how do we break that cycle of trying to find ways of instilling that optimism that, you know, Kara, I really like that idea too of, you know, because one of the things, I think one of the worst things for activism is just apathy, right? It's too big. I can, what, what difference can I make in recycling, et cetera, to help the environment? It's no big. I can't make a change. Therefore, I'm not going to participate. I'm just going to kind of give in to whatever. But how do we, yeah, how do we get to that idea where we can start to break that idea of you do have time. It might not be fixed in five years. It might take 200 years, but you can participate in that and you can be part of that. And how do we start to grow like kind of counteract that pessimism with optimism as we think about those futures. I'm going to come in here because I think, because I hear this a lot, because obviously in the climate field, there's this idea that if only we can just come up with a really positive story, we'll be fine. We can organize right, right. and make it all happen. And I, I actually think it's a it's a complete red herring. <laughs> um, and, and optimism understood as, you know, the idea that things are going to turn out fine, I think is actually not, it's, it's not the story right now. And I think there's a huge difference between optimism and hope. And hope being kind of famous phrases, I think it's Vaclav Havel, is that, you know, hope is not the belief that everything's going to turn out fine, but that what you're doing makes sense. But mm -hmm. what you are doing yeah, makes yeah. sense, okay? And that is a very different thing from this constant deferral into the future of this of this bright, new, shiny world. Because the risk of that, the risk 
is that also we stop looking around us. We stop seeing the world we're in is already catastrophic and brilliant. It's both of those things. We need to look at both of those things at the moment and say, how do we cultivate what could be? How do we organize to cultivate the possibility that is there? So here I look at Anna Dinnerstein's work. She talks about the art of organizing hope. We need to recover that art. We do not need to recover the ability to just imagine a shiny future that's going to make us all feel better because actually, you know, things right now are tricky. Mm -hmm. So it is that art of organizing hope and it's that production of courage, the building of relationships, the doing of the work that makes sense. And we know when things make sense. We know when we're doing things that make sense. You can feel it in your body. I absolutely agree. So there's something about trusting that. I actually wanted to also, um, you know, say that I don't think we talk nearly enough about the damage that is all around us and the catastrophes that we are facing. I think especially in media, the conversations are much more about the techno-scientific solutions, about the bright futures. All we have to do is just patiently wait and, you know, we'll come up with some brilliant um, you know, human new um, technologies, right? Yeah. That will Silicon help us sell everything. Valley solution, right? But I yeah. love the idea also. So I, I really, uh, really like reading also Donna Haraway's work, Anna Tsing's work on the art of living on a damaged planet, right? So how can we kind of resituate ourselves and uh, begin relating to the damage that we have done um, in ways that is meaningful, that helps us survive, right? And helps maybe others around us survive, whether human or non-human, more than human. So it's definitely both kind of facing the realities that surround us and uh, engaging with it meaningfully. And we are not learning that at all in schools. No, right no. Now. I think we are learning, oh, everything will be fine. And children are super frustrated about this too, because they see what's around, right? But they are not. And, and it's not just in relation to climate change. I mean, you know, if we think about it, we've got millions of children acting as carers for ill parents and family members. We've got millions of kids who are having to work at the same time. We've got millions of kids who are living in poverty. There's kids in the UK who, you know, don't have beds. They don't have food. They're, you know, children are not stupid. They are completely aware of the realities of the world that they're living in. Wouldn't it be amazing if we create a space in education to talk about that and then start saying, and what does it take to change it? What does it take for us to work together? Now, the difficulty is the answers to that are quite dangerous. The answers to that mean things like clubbing together, working collectively, trying to figure out how you lobby collectively for changing politics. And we have a government in the UK that has de defined that talking about any limits or problems to capitalism is seen as political intervention. So, you know, there are bigger issues here and it really isn't about creating shiny futures. We have had a prime minister standing at COP26 in Glasgow saying, you know, it's a ticking bomb, it's James Bond, don't worry at the last minute, we just need some people to invent technologies to fix this. That is the sort of futures thinking that is toxic so we need to remember there is toxic futures thinking and then there is critical, reflective, emancipatory futures practices. There's an ethics around all of this that we need to think about. 
Thank you, Carrie. That's beautiful, Carrie. Yeah. And on that note, I wanted to maybe ask you maybe one last question, because in your last article, latest article with Arati Sriprakash, you wrote about also this need to liberate education from the future. So I assume it resonates what you just talked about, but I wanted to maybe in closing, give you a little bit, invite you to share a little bit more about this idea of liberating education from the quote unquote future, the future. Well, I suppose the simple fact is, is, is the future in education tends to get used to impact backwards on childhood to say what childhood should be. And I suppose I'm drawn to the work that says education is that amazing encounter between the world as it exists and these new people, these new people, and we don't know who they are. And if this is not about simply saying, let them be who they can be or let them transform, it is about saying, how do we create that amazing space in education of the encounter between the world and the child so that something new can emerge that we cannot envisage yet and that allows those people to create, and this is a Hannah Arendt phrase, to create a common world together. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of quick thoughts. I mean, I, I just love the, carry the temporal piece that you talked about, um, because it, it to me, it connected also with what Iveta, what you were saying about these narratives, you know, that, that it's a question of time as it plays out. And the other thing that Iveta, I think you have really brought home to me over the past few years um, is this sort of loss of connection we have with the real world, uh, with the natural world. Um, and to me, that more than anything else is sort of, um, I mean, this is something interesting that Betty G and I were talking about the other day that, you know, for for the longest time, we have placed ourselves above sort of the natural world because of our logical capabilities and so on. But now as these logical capabilities are sort of under attack with these new technological tools, we are having to identify what becomes human is not, you know, that the card thing of like, I think therefore I am, it's increasingly becoming, I feel therefore. I am. And so I wonder if there is sort of a transition happening here in our vision of ourselves as being one with nature rather than being the sort of, you know, the, the, the idea of this cognition sort of floating in the world disconnected from the globe and from the planet, from the people and the animals and all of us who live in it together. I wonder, I mean, this is completely speculative, just struck me as I was listening to you guys and I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, and I think it's kind of redefining the connections, right? Not only with mm -hmm. the natural world, but also with technology, right? And uh, yes. our, this extreme drive to always control and manage and steward over everything else, right? Control and exploit everything else around us. So, you know, whether it's people or land or technology for that matter, right? So it's at the very core redefining how do we engage with the world and all the different beings of the world, right? Whether they're living or non-living nature or technology or, you know, anything in between. Right. No, I think it's, it's too, a really right? provocative idea. Yeah, and each other as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I want to I want to put in a, a request that um, that we keep thinking and feeling um, that both of these are part of of what of what it is that we that we do and um, and and add to that also making and and acting um, this this question of what does it mean to to do in the world to be with each other to try to create something different and also that critical question of when do we decide not to make when do we decide not to do when do we decide to let things go that's the thing we've not talked about actually is which stories do we need to let go mm -hmm. if we're going to 
open up space for new sorts of futures. Like hospicing modernity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, this has been this has been an absolute oh, fascinating conversation. And you know, just being um, uh, mindful of our time and all that kind of stuff. Cause I mean, selfishly, you know, Aveta and Carrie, you know, I think Puni and I could hold you guys here for like hours, but I know <laughs> we don't have that that luxury uh to do. But hopefully we'll be able to convince both of you to come back at another time. Um, Aveta, like I said, I think you know, we might as well just pull up a, a chair for you. You're you're here enough for, you know, I think that's a that's a great thing. But before we sign off, I just want to kind of go, give an opportunity. So Aveta or Carrie, um, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience, um, doesn't have to be anything we talked about today. Um but yeah, I would just want to give you a, an opportunity to to plug um, any work or any resources or anything like that that you might think um, our broad sort of general audience would would appreciate. Um, so, Carrie, maybe I can start with you if there's anything you'd like to to share, and we'll and we'll make sure we'll put all the stuff in the show notes so everyone can can grab access. Great. I mean, I I'd always like to talk about the Ecoversities Network, which is a network that has been very powerful and important in my thinking which is an amazing network of people trying to develop different sorts of educational practices and relations. And also um, a new college that I've been involved in setting up, which is called the Black Mountains College, which is saying a completely different way of saying, how do we, how do we educate in conditions of climate change? And uh, it's been such a joy working with them to begin to start from scratch a new institution and say, if we were going to do this differently, how would we do it? And it's, it's based in the Black Mountains in Wales. And it obviously plays homage to the, to the US Black Mountain College in its commitment to the arts and the imagination, to science, and to the capacity to think politically. And we're trying to weave those three different ways, those three different strands together into a completely different new approach to an undergraduate degree to try to equip people to live well in the world. Gary, I had no idea you were involved in this. I would love to talk more about this. So uh, we are in the very early stages of developing a new and fully online degree program, master's degree program in education for sustainability and global futures. And we we want to also weave in science and arts and imagination in one program. And we want to have it organized in very radically different ways too. So I would love to talk um about some of the ideas um and uh maybe see what are some of the synergies of points of connection it would be absolutely fascinating great well maybe these guys will invite us back for a conversation about these new experiments at some point (laughs) but i also wanted to give a plug in for carrie's uh article I mentioned earlier that just was published called Provincializing Futures Literacy, A Caution Against Codification, which she co-wrote with uh, another colleague of ours, Arati um, Sriprakash, just recently published. Um, I also wanted to give a heads up that we just updated the Turn It Around website with a new collection from Southeast Asia that has beautiful um, striking images of the futures that are very different from the original collection for some reason, uh, and probably for some of the cultural reasons as well. And, you know, beautiful texts that go along with it uh, that really bring in a lot of the indigenous knowledge traditions and futures thinking as well, which is um, absolutely powerful. And I'll share another YouTube videos that actually one of our doctoral students, Tara Bartlett, shared uh, with us just this week about um, that another friend of her produced and its conversations with high school students and middle school students about how much they 
are upset when adults keep difficult topics away from conversations in the classrooms and how much they do want to have these difficult conversations about the climate futures, about different crises around them in a safe space in the classroom. Because if we can't have these conversations in the classroom, where else can we have them? Basically, that's their challenge to us. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Puni, anything else you want to add before we sign off? No, this was great. Like, you know, honestly, we could have gone on forever, but I really uh, feel privileged, Kerry, that you, we got a chance to hear your ideas and Iveta, always a pleasure to hang out with you in flesh or in, in, you know, in person or in, in over Zoom. So thank you very much. Thanks, Gary, for joining us again. And thanks, Sean Punya, for hosting us. Thanks. Yes, of course. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, like literally anytime. Um, so, and also just to, for our audience, you know, if you'd like to learn more about our guests or any of the resources we've talked about or, or were shared today, we'll be sure to drop those links and information in our show notes. Um, so again, thanks for everyone for joining us today on the Learning Futures podcast. That's a wrap. You've been listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us a note. We would love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. The Learning Futures Podcast is a collaborative production by Enterprise Technology and the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The show's executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, produced by Jacob Snyder with production support by Jennifer Ayala and technical production provided by Jacob Snyder. We hope you have enjoyed this episode.